Well, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 8, 9, and 12 this morning. And we've had a couple of interruptions to our little, I guess we could call it a micro-series on the church's servants. And so let's catch up just a little bit. A couple of Sundays ago, we laid a basic foundation for the designated servants in the church. And our motivation is that the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, is examining us. He expects obedience from us out of our love for him, our devotion to him. We don't get to just make up how to do church. We are the church of, meaning belonging to, Jesus Christ. We said that while the scriptures have clear guidelines about the office and about the qualifications of the church's servants, we have quite a bit of latitude and freedom in how we implement this layer of servant leadership, who are the deacons. We talked about the principle of the office, we talked about the position of the office, the proof of the office, and the progression of the office. And I want to very briefly review those. The principle of the office of deacon is that the shepherding and spiritual leadership of the church is assisted by other men who carry out more functional duties to serve the body. They enable others to shepherd. We talked about the position of the office. We looked at the word itself, diakonos, where we get deacon. It has the basic meaning of servant or a minister who carries out tasks. We said it can speak of someone who serves as an agent or an intermediary or a courier or a messenger of information. And that's going to be important a little later this morning, that agent, that intermediary role. And we said that the people of the ancient Greco-Roman world already knew this word. They know the, the concept of diakonos because it's a position used in other organizations, a representative or a messenger for a higher up authority, one who assists that authority to multiply his effectiveness. And then we talked about the proof that the deacon candidate is to provide proof of his fitness for the office by being tested. And we saw this in verse 10. Let them be also tested first. He's tested in regards to his qualifications, regards to his record of service. He's to be blameless, above reproach. No one has a reason that he should not be serving. And then we talked about what we call the progression that there are rewards for serving well as a deacon. Verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That he has a good standing, his reputation in the church is for as someone who is all in for the gospel, all in for the glory of God. And we said he has a growing strength in the faith of the Lord. He's, he's a man of faith who gives confidence to other church members Because he's seen God's faithfulness, he trusts God's faithfulness, he exemplifies a confident reliance upon the Lord. And so that's how we introduce this, kind of laying that foundation. After that foundation now, I'd like to focus specifically on the qualifications of the office. Now before we get to that, let me just start off with a couple of applicational observations. Something for us to keep in mind. First of all, I think one thing this text makes very clear is that serving in the church of Jesus Christ is a privilege. It's an absolute privilege. A deacon is not someone who condescends to serve, but it's someone who has earned the honor of serving. And to do so with effort and toil and exertion, it's not just a position, it's not a title, it's not, it's not a, a name tag. 
It is work. It's exertion. But the second observation I'd like to make, and I think this is true for all of us today, particularly the men in the church, and that is that the qualifications we're going to talk about today don't just function as great qualifications of a deacon, but they really serve as what all men should aspire to. And so I could very easily preach a message today just called How to Be a Godly Man. And so that's what this will be today. Now, we don't really have to come up with much of an outline because the Apostle Paul has already provided a very nice outline for us, and we'll just follow his wording. Look with me at verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be, first, dignified, second, not double-tongued, third, not addicted to much wine, fourth, not greedy for dishonest gain, fifth, verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, And sixth, we'll summarize several qualifications into one. In verse 12, he's an intentional family man. Let deacons be each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. And so we'll put that one all together. And so let's just walk through these qualifications and let's see what the Lord Jesus would have us to do as a church. First, the deacon must be dignified. Now in English... Being dignified or having dignity, it speaks of someone of a serious or a composed manner, composed bearing. We even, we even assign certain cultures as being dignified in some ways. It speaks of this way of carrying yourself. But the Greek term has a much broader flavor to it. It speaks of being worthy of respect. It speaks of being honorable. There's even the connotation of, of moral character, moral uprightness encompassed in that term altogether. And we should note that this particular qualification is so important that it's also a qualification to be an elder in verse 4 and a qualification to be a serving woman in the church in verse 11. I want to try and help us wrap our minds around what it means to be dignified. And we'll say right now that this is not speaking of putting on airs. This is not speaking of giving off a certain external impression. There's a heart motive involved, which I think we can flesh out. And what I'd like to do is just give you three associations that the New Testament bears out concerning what it means to be dignified. Some things that being dignified are associated with. The first association, dignity indicates age and experience. It indicates age and experience. Now, to be very clear, this doesn't mean that a certain age is necessary to be a deacon, but acting a certain age is. Now, where do we get this? In Titus 2, verse 2, Paul tells Titus that he's to teach the older men to be, same word in Greek, dignified. And it's surrounded by some other admonitions for older men, which help us understand Paul's point. He's also to be sober-minded, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, in steadfastness. In other words, he's a grown-up. He's responsible. He's left boyish habits behind, boyish practices behind. By the way, the implication of the fact that Paul is telling Titus to teach the older men in the Church of Crete to be dignified is that many of them were not. And especially if some of these men were to lead in the church, Titus chapter 1, they needed to be dignified. Now, does this mean that you must be stoic, that you cannot have a sense of humor? Does it mean that you're totally serious all the time? 
That's not the flavor of this idea. What it does mean, though, is that you know when to get down to business. You know when it's time to speak of the weightier matters of life and faith and heaven and hell. And those things are a big deal to you. And so dignity indicates age and experience. There's a second association. Dignity indicates a life of prayer. It indicates a life of prayer. What do we mean by this? Well, men who are overly silly and immature all the time give away the fact that they don't wrestle with God in prayer. That they're not men of prayer. Look with me at the previous chapter in chapter 2, probably on the same page. Chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. These men are to be serious in prayer. They're giving supplications. This is the idea of pleading before God. They're giving prayers. That's just generally asking of God. Intercessions, bringing others before the Lord. And thanksgivings, which indicate a proper perspective of attitude. And you know this, the result, that we, it's an adverbial purpose clause, that this is the reason, this is what happens, this is the result, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified. What does the life of prayer produce? Peace, quiet, godliness, dignity. The dignified deacon has scars on his knees from kneeling before God. He has streaks on his face from the tears shed before the throne. He's vitally aware that the church and the gospel deal with life and death and heaven and hell, the weightiest issues of humanity. Now, absolutely, he may be a really fun guy to be around, but when it's time to be about the things of God, no one is more serious than him. No one is more grave than him. No one is more sober than he is and this dignity is produced by a life of prayer and so dignity indicates age and experience it indicates a life of prayer there's a third association dignity indicates deep thinking it indicates deep thinking paul tells us in philippians 4 8 finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there is any excellence If anything is worthy of praise, think about these things. These are divine things. These are heavenly things. These are the things of God. They're awe-inspiring things. They're majestic things. But I'd point out that when Paul says to think on the things that are honorable, it's the same Greek word translated dignified here in 1 Peter and 1 Timothy 3. Think on things that are filled with honor, that are dignified, that are weighty, that are big. This is the sort of thinking that indicates that the man isn't mired in the day-to-day concerns of life, but he thinks of higher things. His perspective is heavily influenced by the knowledge of the sovereignty of God, of the plan of God, of the eschatological future that God promises. In fact, for him, deep thinking is a regular practice. For example, for him, Colossians 3, 1-4 is natural, where Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Colossians 3, 1-4 is like breathing 
for the dignified man. He thinks about the fact that he's died with Christ. His life is hidden with Christ. Christ will appear and he will appear with him in glory. His mind is heavenward. He's saturating his heart and his mind in truth through the word of God such that he's seeking the things that are above where Christ is. That's where he is. That's where his mind goes. That's where his heart goes. And because of this deep thinking nature, he becomes a spiritual leader, not by a title, not by an office, not by authority, but the best way ever, by example. Those who know him know that he thinks about and talks about heavenly things. They know that he loves the gospel of Jesus Christ. They know that he has a vital concern for the lost. They know that he loves the people of the church. And they know as a deacon that he deeply yearns and desires to facilitate the shepherding of the church by supporting the shepherds, not just because he has a skill of some sort, but because he is dignified. Those around him know that he's a godly man. So dignity is associated with age and experience. It's associated with a life of prayer. It's associated with a life of deep thinking about the things that are above. And For this man, somehow the shenanigans of boyhood, the, the silliness and the man-centeredness that so often defines the church in our country, it just doesn't hold any appeal for him. And so the deacon first must be dignified. Paul gives us a second qualification. He must not be double-tongued. He must not be double-tongued. This can be translated that these are men who are not gossips. But there's a different word in Greek for gossip, which means basically just to repeat something that's not yours to repeat. But right here, where it says not double-tongued, this is a unique word in the New Testament. It's used only here. It's a compound word, and it literally means something that is said twice. Something that's said twice. To say the same thing twice with the intent to communicate two different things on each occasion. To be hypocritical, to be insincere, to be deceitful. In fact, there's a flavor of manipulation and intent to this. In fact, the negative in front of the word, the not here, it means this can, either, this can be either not saying one thing while thinking something else, Or it can mean not saying one thing to one person, but saying a different thing to another, which is a classic manipulation technique. For all of the church, but especially for the deacons here, we would think of Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. What is corrupting talk? It's a word that means that which has gone bad, that which is rotten, which is spoiled, which is decayed, which is diseased. It's corrupted. It's the same word in the idea that Jesus explained about knowing the real believer from the false. He said in Matthew 7, 17, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree, same word, bears bad fruit. And so what is corrupting talk? Well, the contrast has already been provided in Ephesians 4.29. The contrast is, but only such talk as is good for building up. Talk which gives grace. So, corrupting talk is that which tears down and which removes grace. Which corrupts a person's view of another. Now, you might say, well, I can 
not participate in corrupting talk, but I'm fine with hearing it and I can remain the same in my view of someone even when I listen to corrupting talk. Actually, Ephesians 4.29 says the opposite. It is corrupting talk. It corrupts you. What does the very next verse say that corrupting talk does? It grieves the Holy Spirit. Why does corrupting talk grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, those of you who are parents understand this completely. How do you feel when one of your children is deriding and insulting another? It grieves you. You want your children to love one another. But the idea here in 1 Timothy 3 of being double-tongued, it goes beyond just gossip out of a lack of self-discipline or, or self-awareness or, or even a lack of... It's not the idea of just accidentally saying more than you should have. There's a motive. There's a heart behind it. In fact, this falls much more into the category of Proverbs 11.3 that the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. To be double-tongued is the, is the act of a reviler, someone who intentionally uses words to harm others or to, to position himself or to cast others in a disparaging light for selfish and sinful motives. Now, why would this particular warning be given to deacons? You remember we said that one of the main functions of a deacon is that, the, that this idea carries in part being messengers, couriers, representatives. In large part, the deacons represent the elders to the church and represent the church to the elders. And so the potential to misuse that position by saying one thing to one person and something else to someone else or by using corrupting talk to give a a mistaken impression of a leader to a church member or of a church member to a leader, that potential is high. It may be someone with an agenda of power and control. It may be to harm someone you disagree with or you don't like. It may be to intentionally steer the church in the direction that you want by manipulating behind the scenes. All of this and being double-tongued in any way is completely out of the spirit of the sacrificial service for the sake of the gospel and of the kingdom. In fact, being double-tongued is an indicator of a severe heart problem, even up to and including not being regenerate. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6.10 that revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Revelation 21.8 that all liars will receive their portion in the lake of fire. This is serious business. I've been in the ministry long enough to have the opportunity to counsel with men who have literally been run out of their own churches. And I've lost track of the number of times where that can be traced to one man or one woman in the church who decided they didn't want that leader there anymore and so they went on a campaign being how? Double-tongued. It's dangerous. And so a deacon who's upright in speech is a must-have in the church of Jesus Christ. This is a third qualification. And, and again, this is just sort of like a round robin of how to be a godly man. The third qualification, he must not be addicted to much wine. Not be addicted to much wine. This isn't a prohibition against drinking alcohol. But I would have you keep in mind two historical facts. First of all, the wine of the first century world was many times weaker than the wine that we're familiar with today. The second fact is that 
the reason wine was so common, one of the main functions of wine was to act as a concentrate, uh, almost like a, a, a jelly or a thick juice that was then mixed with water in part to kill all the, the germs in the water. Now, they couldn't define germs or bacteria. They just knew that when you drank water, uh, you got sick. The quest for pure water was always a big deal in the ancient world, and so mixing a little wine in was a way to purify it. But this phrase specifically has reference to paying attention to his next drink. That's the idea of addicted here. That's what the word means. It means to think about something continually. He thinks about his next drink in terms of a craving and a need. And of course, the problem with that is this leaves his judgment impaired and critically damages his reputation. This is absolutely not congruent. It's not consistent with the type of man we've already described who's dignified, who's a deep, what, thinking man. Instead, he's to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not by anything else. It doesn't mean that he's a man utterly without temptation. That doesn't exist. But he's a man who doesn't willingly succumb to them by always thinking about them, always thinking about the next time. That's my focus. Or maybe to put it this way, he isn't a man who believes his own pleasure in life is a necessity. He isn't constantly pursuing pleasing himself. Now, I would point out that this is phrased slightly differently than the qualification of an elder in verse 3, who is not to be a drunkard. That's more about the habit of drinking. Here for the deacon, there's more the nuance of thinking of drinking, of where his heart is. His heart is all about pursuing his own pleasure. Now, when we looked at the elder qualifications, we did note a little memory trick. And here is the memory trick. What is the legal drinking age? It's 21, right? So we remember Proverbs 21, which says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. The heavenly-minded leader never wants to be in a situation where his judgment is impaired. I've heard this numbers of times as a pastor, the old excuse, well, I just drink in my home. That's nobody's business, what I do in my home. Actually, the final qualification of being a deacon is all about what happens in your home. It is absolutely our business. I'll tell you what, I've lost track of the number of children and wives I've talked to over my years of ministry and counseling who get nervous and who get afraid. And on certain evenings, sometimes all of them, sometimes Fridays, sometimes Saturdays, they begin counting the number of drinks that husband and dad has had in the evening. After a certain number, he gets a little odd. After one more, he gets difficult, and add one more, he gets dangerous and unpredictable. And more often than not, the family is ashamed, and so they keep it a secret. Because nobody wants a drunk for a dad and a husband. And I will say this, I I hope this isn't the case, but I, I have to say this aloud. Ladies, one of the things that we want to do in the church is protect you. And if your husband is a secret drinker who gives you fear and nervousness because he becomes impaired, you let the elders know. And I promise you, we will pay him a visit. It's a shame, it's a disgrace to have secret drunks in the church and we want to come alongside you. And for you men, we live in a difficult world. If you know that that's you, just because we have a sign that says Grace Bible Church doesn't mean that we don't have some drunks here. 
Quit keeping the secret and let us know. We'll walk through it with you. We'll hold you accountable until you stop worshiping that idol. We'll be happy to do that. Because drunkenness is one of the clearest indicators in Scripture of worldliness and debauchery and wretchedness. Drunkenness escapes in the, it gives you an escape from reality. That's what it's about. Instead, the Christian runs to the Lord not to escape from reality, but to walk through the realities of life with grace and patience and trust, not just numbing yourself against whatever you want to face. And incidentally, we don't use any substance. We don't use any activity to numb ourselves. We face them with God's help. And men, I would say this to you. you. You may not be a king, but you're the head of your household. In a certain way, you're, you're the king of your house. And we're reminded again of the words of Proverbs 31, 4 and 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. In fact, the verses immediately following say that wine and strong drink are for the hopeless, for the dying, for those who are in bitter distress, by, by implication, the unbeliever who has rejected God and yet is miserable. Verse 7 of Proverbs 31 says, Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. In other words, let them have a numbed, pitiful end to a pitiful, wasted life. But not for men, not for kings, not for those in authority. What a contrast to the deacon, to the godly man who's to be a model of spiritual alertness and readiness that he's ready to go. There's a fourth qualification. He's not greedy for dishonest gain. Now I might point out here, you you might be saying to yourself, there's a lot of negatives here. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Have you hung around men? We need those, don't we? And those are easy for us to understand. You don't tell a man, let me give you 19 reasons why you should stop doing something. You just say, stop it. And we kind of understand that a little bit better. So Paul just says, stop this, stop this, and stop this. And so the fourth one, not greedy for dishonest gain. Now this phrase here, greedy for dishonest gain, it's one long word in Greek. And it speaks of a fondness of making money the fast way. It speaks of avarice, of a drooling desire for money and more money and more money that is never enough. This isn't speaking of the ability to make money because you can have the heart attitude of greed and still be poor. And you can be wealthy and not have a heart attitude of greed. It speaks of the love of money in the heart. And this can be a problem For at least three reasons for a deacon of the church. Let me give you some reasons this can be a problem. First of all, it's destructive in the church. It's absolutely destructive in the church. This this greediness can act the same way as an addiction to alcohol or to drugs. Something you live for. Something you think about constantly. Something that, that consumes you. Something that gets in your way. Something that is such a pleasure to you. In fact, listen to how destructive Paul says this desire for wealth is. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read this to you. He says this in verse 9, but those who desire, literally lust after, to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. One man in the church who is falling to temptation, to the snare, to senseless desires, harmful desires, ruin, destruction, evil, even causing him to wander from his faithfulness to Christ, or perhaps, worst of all, show that he was never in Christ to begin with. One man like that is destructive in the church. And he either needs to repent or he needs to be escorted out, according to Matthew 18. The greedy man cannot think straight about kingdom things because his kingdom is now. Our kingdom is later, isn't it? And he certainly has no concept of what it means to trust the Lord for basic necessities. I'm so thankful for all the times in my life when we were praying for our next meal or praying for our next bill to be paid because it drove us to our knees to trust the Lord until it just becomes automatic. And so the first reason this is a problem, this can be destructive in the church. Second reason this can be a problem for a deacon in the church, very practical reason, a deacon may find himself handling money. He may find himself handling money. You remember in the first century church, the church's money was actual money that somebody had to watch over. It wasn't just lines on an accounting program representing the bank balance. It was actual money. There was an actual bag of money or a box where money was kept and somebody had to watch over it. And the temptation for the one who loves money is just too overwhelming. You remember Judas? John 12, verse 6 says that he was in charge of the money bag for the disciples and, quote, used to help himself to what was put into it. I've talked to thieves before, and it is a slippery slope. Well, I deserve this. It's just a little. It's not as much as last time. It won't be the, this will be the last time. I won't ever do it again. You recall this is also a qualification of eldership in verse 3 that it is not a lover of money. A deacon may find himself handling money. Uh, For me personally, as a pastor, I I have so many guards around me to make sure I can't come anywhere near money. I don't know the combination to our safe. I don't have a key to that box back there. I can't even write a check. And I love that because I'm just hands up. I don't have to worry about it. But somebody has to handle the money. There's a third reason this greediness can be a problem for a deacon, and it might surprise you, but this greed can manifest itself in the desire to be stingy on behalf of the church. To be stingy. To seeing the spending of funds for the gospel ministry as something to avoid. That we should be as cheap and low cost on everything as possible, that somehow the goal of the church is to build up a big bank account and to protect the institution at all costs over and above ministry. I don't know. I I don't know the answer to this question, but I can make a guess. Will the Lord be more pleased with a church that has $10 million in the bank when he returns or one that just spent their last nickel on the ministry? What are you going to do with $10 million when Christ returns? Have a bonfire, I guess. This is the man who chokes on the double honor salary requirement to shepherds of 1 Timothy 5.17 who says, well, I, I think shepherds should be paid like teachers or should be paid like so-and-so to make sure to keep them down. This is the one who's more concerned that the church have money in the bank than reward in heaven. This is the man who believes that it is divinely ordained that the bathrooms have one-ply toilet paper. 
This is the man who has luxury items in his home, but he wants junk for the church. This is a form of greed because he sees the church in terms of money. Now, money is necessary to the running of the church, but it's, an, it's only an outgrowth of the spiritual condition of the church, right? That's all it is. The church at Philippi was incredibly generous with the Apostle Paul when he was in prison. Can you imagine if the deacon who took care of the money was stingy and refused to let the church send much-needed resources to Paul? The book of Philippians, which is a thank-you note to the church at Philippi for their generosity, would be very different to the church at Philippi, grace and peace to you. I want to thank you for the $1.95 you sent me. I bought a hamburger with it. Instead, he says, I have more than I need. The implication is you can stop. And so he is not to be greedy for dishonest gain. There's a fifth qualification, and it's the entirety of verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Paul uses this term mystery. It's very important for him. He uses it 21 times in his letters, so it's a, it's a big part of his theology. The basic meaning of mystery in Paul's theology is a knowledge of God that's beyond the ability of sinful mankind to grasp, but now is graciously revealed through the gospel. Now, when we think of mystery, we think of something that's hidden, but when Paul uses mystery... He speaks of something that's revealed and made known now by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For example, in Colossians 1, beginning in verse 25, Paul said that he was made a minister of God, quote, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And he says what it is which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. Christ in you, the hope, meaning the certainty of being with him in glory. That forgiveness of sin is accomplished by Christ at the sacrifice of the cross. And here, when Paul says that the deacon must hold the mystery of the faith, he's speaking specifically of the content of the gospel. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Salvation by faith alone in Christ alone is revealed in the scriptures alone. Now there's an element of perseverance here. The verb must hold is a present active participle. You must continue holding on to. You must continue keeping. This is the perseverance of the, of the saints here. And it must be with a clear conscience that within himself there's no doubt about the gospel. That he believes what he believes what he believes. And there's, there's no part of him that has any shadow of doubt about the truth of Christ's gospel. But is this merely speaking of a theological certainty regarding the gospel? No, it's not. It speaks here, and consistent with the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, it speaks here of a connection between faith and practice. That the deacon should have a firm and a determined grasp on the gospel, and the gospel should be working itself in his life, working itself out in his conduct. And this connection is a very common theme in the pastoral epistles, and I'd like to take a moment and trace this theme for you, because it's key for us here. In the pastoral epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, salvation is generally described as being in the past, in the future, and in the present. Salvation in the past 
was accomplished by and is finished by Christ. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In other words, Christ's work on the cross has already accomplished salvation for the elect. Titus 3.5, he saved us, past tense, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. In Titus 3.7, being justified, a past act, an act in the past by his grace. Our justification, our position as the children of the living God through Christ is secured. The work is finished at the cross. Redemption is bought and paid for. It's done. But the results of your redemption have yet to be completed. And so salvation is also spoken of in terms of being in the future. Salvation in the future speaks of the consummation, the finishing of the redemptive plan of God for the elect. For example, in 1 Timothy 4.16 Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the perseverance of the saints. Titus 3, 7, we would continue it. Being justified by his grace, that's in the past, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the future. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's future. He says in 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's future. The future consummation of our salvation, bringing us into the kingdom, will be completed Christ-likeness is a certainty. Your position in heaven. Does it ever occur to you that as we sit here in this little building on Young Street, that there will be a day when we are literally before Christ himself? I don't know if we get to have a little reunion together. If you've been in a bunch of different churches, I guess you're just going to run around a lot. I don't know. Does that occur to you? Our salvation in the future is certain. But that brings us now down to Paul's point here. Salvation which was secured in the past and will most certainly be completed in the future is demonstrated in the present. We manifest salvation by our present life of holiness and seeking obedience to the Lord. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. What is a holy calling? Very simply, it's a calling that's holy and holiness is a calling. 2 Timothy 2.19, he says, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. In Titus 3, beginning in verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. What does that imply? That now we are not foolish, not disobedient, not being led astray, not slaves to various passions and pleasures, not passing our days in malice and envy, and so forth. In fact, in explaining why Christian slaves should obey their masters, Paul says in Titus 2, 9 and 10, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Did you catch that? Good faith is faith that is demonstrated by obedience, by submission. 
And so when Paul says that a deacon must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, he's saying that not only does the deacon have a clear and committed understanding of the gospel, but his life is demonstrating a regenerate nature, and the deacon has a clear conscience, not because he's living a life of sinless perfection that's impossible in this life, That won't happen until Christ appears, but he has a clear conscience because he's not living a double life. His conscience is clear in that he can freely serve as a deacon in the church without the weight of guilt that he is pursuing, not just struggling with, but pursuing a secret life of sin. So why is it necessary that a servant in the church have sound doctrine, sound practice, that he holds to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience? Because his life is evidence of the totality of his belief and his commitment to the gospel. In other words, he's not just a guy who says, yes, I believe the gospel. But he's a man that you can set loose into the church of Jesus Christ to be a living example of what it means to live for God. That alone makes it worth it. There's a sixth qualification, and we'll summarize several into one category. He's an intentional family man. He's an intentional family man. Verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. At first, I thought I will just summarize this in, in a couple of minutes, and I decided against that. This is important. First of all, He's the husband and one wife. We covered this when we looked at the same qualification for eldership, so I will do just a brief review on that. The husband and one wife is more precisely in Greek, a one-woman man. It's not a requirement to be married, but it is a statement of loyalty and fidelity and, and honor if you are married. He's faithful to the wife that he has. He's not a man seeking other relationships. He's not a man habitually wandering with his thoughts and with his eyes. He's, he adores his wife. He's devoted to her. He should be someone who's capable of being tender and kind and loving and a servant to his wife. If he can't be tender and kind and loving and a servant to his wife, why would we expect him to be able to do that with the church? And same as the qualification for eldership, He must manage his children and his household well. He must manage, literally stand over his home. He needs to be the clear leader. His home isn't characterized by chaos, by wildness, or or by a sense that things are out of control. And he's to keep his children submissive. They aren't wild. They're uncontrollable. In other words, he's actively training his children to obey. This isn't a demand for perfect children. It is a demand for a home that isn't chaotic, that's characterized by children who obey their father. And I'd like to camp out on that for a few minutes because the world has absolutely tried to decimate biblical parenting. So I want to talk about the discipline of children for a bit and tell you why this is important for a deacon. For me personally, as a minister of the gospel, this is a key component for any responsibility person who has a position of responsibility in the church because a man who won't discipline his children and yet serves with responsibility sends a very terrible mixed message to those who are watching his life. So what does it mean to discipline children in a biblical fashion? I want to look briefly at a few classic Proverbs to get a sense of this, and we'll just take a little tour together. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 19, and we'll start down what some have called the Proverbs Hall of Fame for child discipline. Proverbs 19, and we'll begin 
with Proverbs 19, verse 18. And beginning in chapter 19, you just get these, these wonderful, very clear admonitions to parents. And of course, the, the implication for all the book of Proverbs is that you're obeying these principles, these general principles for life, because you love the Lord your God and you want to obey Him. Or Proverbs 19, verse 18. Commands, discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. This is just a general verse. Discipline can mean to instruct. It can mean to chastise. It can mean to punish. It can mean to rebuke. And it's to give hope of a longer life. This particular proverb doesn't specify the method of chastisement. It just says, just do something. Do something that will correct and send a message that helps a child alter course. Turn to Proverbs 22, chapter 22, verse 15. We'll camp on this just for a moment. Proverbs 22, 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Foolishness, folly, it's bound up in the heart of a child. It means it's tied together. It's conspiring in the heart of a child. That there is, this is almost a, a personification. There's a little person called folly inside your child's heart going, watch this. Well, what does this mean? Well, there's three distinctions or three nuances to folly that's important for us to understand. The first nuance or distinction is just the normal use of folly. That a, a child has no innate sense of judgment. That the younger a child, the less judgment they have. That's why you keep little ones right by your side. They don't know what's safe. They don't know what's not safe. They don't know what's right. They don't know what's wrong. That's why a child's place is in his family because his family is going to guard him and expose him to wisdom slowly as he's able to receive it. And what drives folly from them? The rod, the physical chastisement. And why is this so important? Because the rod, physical chastisement, it overcomes a child's inability to reason. It overcomes his inability to think clearly. You can't reason with a creature who by nature is unreasonable. A three-year-old does not say, I should not run out into the street because the weight and inertia of an automobile may injure or kill me. But a three-year-old can say, I'm not running out in the street because the last time I tried that, my dad blistered my bottom. They understand that. There's a second sense to folly, and that is the sin nature of a child. The sin nature of a child. Yes, there's, there's the naivete of a child, which very often is cute, but a lot of it is bound up in its sin nature. The child's sin nature inherited from Adam such that they are naturally selfish. A three-year-old is not necessarily going to say to himself, if I take this toy that somebody else is playing with, I'm being selfish and violating Philippians 2, 3, and 4. But he can say to himself, the last time I took someone else's toy, my dad walloped my rear end. So discipline drives selfishness from them. And there's a third sense to folly. It's related to the fool of Proverbs, which most of the time is the unbeliever who refuses the counsel of the wise, refuses the teaching of the godly. And so to drive folly from a child is to, from a human perspective, drive them away from that tendency to eventually rebel and totally disregard godly instruction. 
And so because of this folly bound up in the heart of a child, the rod of discipline drives it from him. What is the rod of discipline? It's a stick. There is no other hidden meaning, and it's something that inflicts pain for the purpose of loving discipline. Turn with me to Proverbs 23. What is the rod of discipline? We get another answer. Proverbs 23, verse 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol, from death. We have a singular spiritual authority, and that is the word of God. Even when I said to you, what is a rod? It's a stick. Some of you are like, did he just say that out loud in 2021? Absolutely. Secular psychology has no spiritual authority. Sociology has no spiritual authority. Can I say this? Family law has no spiritual authority. It cannot trump the word of God. So whatever the word of the Lord says is the final authority, regardless of what unbelievers say. You know, for the last 50 years, unbelievers have been saying that you shouldn't discipline children. Where's that got in our world? Because now the undisciplined children are judges and presidents and governors. Our culture has lied to you with things like this. I want my child to learn to fight his own battles. Can I translate that for you? I'm too chicken to get involved in a conflict that my kids started. When my child causes trouble with others, they should just work it, out, work it out among themselves because I don't want to start a conflict. No, you're supposed to start the conflict. You're supposed to say, I'm not only going to start it, I'm going to end it. You step in, you deal with the sin. Here's another lie culture has told us. I want my child to learn to be himself. Translation, whenever he irritates and aggravates and even hurts others, I'm going to let him because he's just expressing himself. Our culture has lied to us saying, I want my child to feel free and not oppressed. Translation, he's more special than everyone else and I'm going to let him run amok because of this. And you create an arrogant child who's impossible. Unbelievers equate spanking with abuse. Can I tell you something? I have a unique position in that through the course of my life, I've had the opportunity to ask about 600 abused children if they know the difference between abuse and spanking. You know how many of them know the difference? All of them. It's very simple for a child. Well, spanking is when I do something wrong and somebody who loves me disciplines me. Abuse is when they hurt me because they're bigger than me. They get it. And so children know the difference, and so do Christians who follow the word of God. And by the way, the implication here of spanking is it's not a little reminder swat. Why is the parent being told that the child won't die? Because discipline's meant to hurt. If it doesn't hurt, the child's going to mock you in his mind as weak and angry and eventually will turn on you because all you did was irritate him. The spanking is meant to lead to repentance. How do you know a spanking is effective? Because there's 30 seconds of this. <laughs> That's effective. If two seconds later he turns around and goes, then what do you do? You take a breath and you go to the other side. <laughs> what does spanking do? It's meant to break the will. 
and to lead to repentance. And how much kinder is that than allowing rebellion to go unchecked? And if you'll be consistent when they're 14 months old, 16 months old, two years old, three years old, four years old, you won't have to go after him when he's 12. By the way, we don't spank or discipline in any other way for weaknesses or for personality conflicts or for developmental issues. We don't spank a child for spilling his juice. That's cruel. But if you told him not to throw his cup and he did it, then you spank. Now you spank for rebellion, for not obeying. And listen, we've said this before, children are natural born gamblers. All children were born in Vegas. (laughs) Every one of them. Because they know that if they've got even a 10 or 20% chance of not getting discipline, they're going to roll the dice. (laughs) But if they know that 100% of the time they step out of line, great pain and agony is going to instantly enter into their lives. Then you can dispense with spanking faster. You're simply constantly giving this choice. You do what I say because it pleases God and me or don't and hear the consequences, then be consistent. You know what a parent who won't discipline his child consistently is? A promise breaker. Look with me at Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29, verse 15. You're wondering, why are we talking about parenting? We'll get to that. Proverbs 29, verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. What are you imparting with the rod? You're imparting wisdom. And notice what it goes with, the rod and reproof. You're being told why you're being disciplined as a child. You're, being, you're having that explained to you. The Bible has many stern warnings to parents that if you won't inflict pain, you're turning your children into people who are nothing but trouble and cause pain to everyone around them. In ancient Israel, what was to be done with a worthless teenager? He was to be put to death. Because he was just going to be trouble his whole life. Let me ask you a question, you parents. What messages are you sending your children? If your child takes what doesn't belong to him and you let him, you just told him stealing is okay. If your child strikes another child and you don't discipline that, you just told him that reviling and abusing and being a bully is okay. If your child refuses to obey other adult authorities and you don't make him repent, you just told him that he's the most important person in the universe and that he's naturally a good person. You're giving him the exact opposite of the gospel. I don't think most of us would would say as Christians, I want to give my child the opposite of the gospel, but when you don't discipline, that's exactly what happens. If your child is disrupting and causing difficulty for others and you as a parent just let it go, listen carefully, Now, it's not just the child that's in sin, it's you. You're in sin because you're allowing a person in your home to mistreat and make trouble for others. So, why is this qualification so important for deacons? Because the church does not need leaders who mistreat and make trouble for others because they won't discipline their children. Now, let me state this positively about all the qualifications. If we have deacons who are fulfilling these qualifications, do you see how this contributes to a healthy and thriving and God-honoring church? 
Because those leading the way in service are also leading the way by being an example to others. Every, every deacon we have in the church should just be an explosion of example. They're dignified. They're honorable in their speech. They're not bound up in sinful pleasures. They're not greedy. Their faith is being lived out. And their family life is one that we could take any young family and say, copy them. Do what they do. Do what this man does. What a church we have when we have deacons who set those examples all to the honor and glory of Christ, the head of the church, because that becomes contagious, doesn't it? Because a church, scary thought, but it can be a good thought, a church tends to become like her leaders. And so if we have these explosions of examples set throughout the body, then the church as a whole grows. And when the church grows in depth, and in breadth, then who receives all the glory and honor? It's Christ, right? And that's the whole goal. Well, let's pray together and then we'll receive the Lord's table. Our Father, we thank you for these clear words. We thank you, Lord, for the very practical definitions here of the servants in the church. And Lord, we would certainly have all of the men of our church aspire to those sorts of dignified qualities, Lord. So, Lord, we pray that you would raise up more men. There may be men here now, this day, who are in their own heart determining, I want to be a deacon. So let them, Lord, let them fulfill those qualifications and put them to work for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. Let them be men who are dignified and honorable in their speech and not addicted to much wine and not greedy for dishonest gain. Men who hold the mystery of the faith with a, with a clear conscience and men who are godly in their family lives. I pray, Lord, that you would raise those men up because more people will come to faith in Christ if the servants of the church are faithful. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.